This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Real-Time History Podcast. This is Flo. I'm one of the producers of Real-Time History, which is a YouTube channel, a production company, and this podcast specializing in, well, serialized history. And with me, as usual, I have Jesse. Yes, I am Jesse, and I'm the resident historian and the host of some of our documentary film projects. Also, as usual, for our long-time listeners, um, we are going to have another historian on the show after you're listening to our rambling intro. Who do we have on the show today, Jesse? Today, I had the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Karine Varley from the University of Strathclyde up in Scotland, and she's a specialist on the Franco-Prussian War and France in particular, and also the aftermath of that war. So we had a conversation that spanned, you know, from 1870 and those early battles in July and the declaration of war, all the way to the lead up to the First World War and revanchisme by way of Algerian colonial situation and Republican sort of ideological ideas of sort of early total war. It was one of the most fascinating discussions that I've had in the time uh, that I've been hosting the podcast. So it's, folks, it's a real treat. Uh, all the better that there was a huge interest in uh, when we posted uh, a call for questions. It seems all of you out there in podcast land and in YouTube land are really interested in 19th century conflicts, which is, uh, we're very glad about that. Uh, our project, Glory and Defeat, about the Franco-Prussian War has been very successful for us so far uh, in terms of the numbers. We were quite nervous, frankly, about it. So keep the questions coming, keep the interest coming, and we will see that we get more guests on this topic on the show as well. Indeed. And just a quick note for any of you out there who are wondering, how can I get my question on the podcast to ask one of the experts? It's as easy as supporting real-time history in what we do. Yeah, it is. Uh, we post a call to questions for our Patreons and also on the Discord where the other supporters of the show are. So thank you so much for your support. And without further ado, here's the interview. So folks, today I'm joined by another special guest on our podcast. Uh, Dr. Karine Varley is a professor at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow. And her areas of expertise include the diplomacy of the Franco-Prussian War, ideas of death and sacrifice, and the commemoration and memory of the war and commune in France after 1871. And she is the author of Under the Shadow of Defeat, the War of 1870-71 in French, memory. So, Dr. Varley, thank you so much for joining us today and 
managing the flood of questions that we had for you from our listeners. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you today. All right. Now, to use my favorite uh, British expression that I've learned in the past year, let us get stuck in and start with a personal question. Um, what drew you to this topic? How did you end up getting interested in France in the aftermath of the Franco-Prussian War? It's not necessarily something that will just occur to one over breakfast. Yeah, I mean, the, the starting point for me was actually one line in a book by um, the historian Robert Gildare. The book was called The Past in French History, and it looked at how the past has shaped the way that France thinks of itself. And there was this one line in the book which said that following the Franco-Prussian War, which Gildare describes as possibly the most humiliating defeat in French history. He argued that France engaged in a kind of collective amnesia, that it kind of forgot that it had been defeated and it tried to convince itself that somehow it had been the moral victor. And that seemed to be such an odd way of responding to a humiliating defeat. And I wanted to really explore this further and to see whether this really was the case. And so that was really the starting point for me, looking into how the war was remembered. And then that got me into looking at how the war was commemorated. And I suppose the next step really that got me interested in the commemoration of the war was looking at the peace terms at the end of the conflict, the Treaty of Frankfurt um, that was signed between the two parties. And Article 16, I was particularly interested in because it provided that both armies both countries had to provide permanent resting places for each of the soldiers. And this was the first time in European history that that had happened. And it got me thinking about what was it about this war that was different from previous wars? What was it about the soldiers who had died in this war that made their sacrifice seem to be different or treated differently to the sacrifices of soldiers in previous wars? So that got me about thinking about what it was that soldiers thought that they were fighting for, what the people thought that they were fighting for, and how all of this played out in the period that followed the defeat um, for France and, of course, the victory for Germany. So that was really the starting point for me for this whole kind of journey of, of interest in uh, the Franco-Prussian War. And recently, this is something that I've come back to, particularly because of the 150th anniversary of the, of the conflict last year. Yeah, that's, that's almost a, sort of a Proustian story where one line from a book all of a sudden teleports you into this whole other, uh, other world like his, his cup of tea did. Um, so let's move to diplomacy then. Let's kind of start at the, at the meta level or at the international level. What are the reactions of the other powers to the declaration of war? And to what extent do they or do they not end up getting involved in terms of arbitration or, you know, the League of Neutrals is something that comes up. The Vatican has a particular role. Uh, yeah, paint us the picture. Yeah, so when war breaks out in July 1870, of course, the rest of Europe doesn't take part. They declare themselves to be neutral. And this is something that continues for the remainder of the war. And so the, the reason for this is essentially a number of reasons. Firstly, because most of Europe believed that this was a conflict that the French had really 
you know, been responsible for, that they had really, um, you know, triggered the whole crisis. They had already gained um, a diplomatic victory over the whole ENS telegram fiasco. They had got the Prussians to effectively climb down over the Hohenzollern candidacy and they secured this victory, but they kept pushing, they kept pushing the, the Prussians to uh, commit to agreeing that they would um, not um, support any future candidacy of a Hohenzollern um, candidate for the throne. And so many in Europe thought that the French were really pushing too far. There was also a genuine belief among many, uh, including the French, that of course that the French would win, that this would be an easy victory for the French forces. Um, you know, only a few decades earlier under Napoleon Bonaparte, the French had ruled much of Europe. So most people thought that this was just simply another act of French provocation, that the French would win, this would all be over fairly quickly. Of course, that didn't happen. Um, now, the new League of Neutrals was something that was formed um, that was uh, formed between the major European powers, and it really came into fruition at the end of August, early September, 1870. But really, um, this was a culmination of various different factors that were going on with the different European powers. Um, and each of them had different reasons for not wanting to join in and, and certainly not to intervene either directly militarily or diplomatically either. The British, for instance, they didn't want to get involved because they were really looking for their, looking to protect their um, global interests, their colonial empire. They saw this as something that they didn't really want to get involved in. Um, and again, they thought this was simply an act of French provocation. So despite the fact that the British and the French had been improving their relations, the British really didn't want to get involved. Now, Napoleon III Napoleon did think that there might be more chance of some intervention by the Italians, possibly the Austrians, also the Russians as well. But each of those failed to happen. Um, with the Italians, there was perhaps more chance of some intervention. The, the Italian king was perhaps more keen than some of the other um, European governments, European rulers, but there were divisions within Italy. There had been a French expectation that the Italians would be grateful for French help in the war against Austria in 1859, but um, again, that didn't happen. Um, there, was, there was real division. The Italian parliament didn't support intervention. Austria, there was also a belief amongst many in the French government that the Austrians might want to come to the French aid. There was a belief that the Austrians might want to get revenge on the Prussians for 1866, when, of course, the, the Prussians defeated the Austrians. But again, that was something that was really um, optimistic, you know, delusional by the French, because for well, a number of reasons, the, the Austrians were, were bound uh, by this time to Hungary, the dual monarchy meant that they had to consider Hungarian view, but also there was a threat from Russia. The Austrians knew that if they intervened, the Russians would, um, there was a good chance that the Russians would send their forces to threaten Austria. And the Russians, meanwhile, well, they had really 
they had been sympathetic to the French, but they had already been got at by Bismarck. Bismarck had already been around the major European capitals speaking to European governments. And Bismarck had effectively promised secretly to the Russians that if they didn't intervene, that Prussia would give them the green light to pursue their aspirations in relation to the Black Sea clauses of the 1856 agreement following the Crimean War. So so it was really in the the Russian interest not to intervene. Also, the, the Russian Tsar remained uh, loyal to um, his family, the family connections with the Prussian king. So that was the reason that Russia didn't intervene. So so effectively, France found itself isolated at the start of the war. And then when Napoleon III um, surrendered and the the Second Empire collapsed and was replaced by the Third Republic, there was even less chance of European intervention because suddenly these conservative European monarchies found themselves um, having to deal with a Republican regime in France. And so, you know, they saw this through the prism of memories of the revolution in the 1790s, and they weren't going to support that kind of of um, monarchy, uh, sorry, that kind of um, republic um, as monarchies. So there was even less chance of intervention as the war went on. She said that last bit gives me a, a sense of deja vu from, uh, from the Congress of Vienna. Um, right, if we drill down a little bit in terms of the diplomatic aspect of the war and maybe some of the practicalities of that, Several listeners of ours asked, uh, what happened to the diplomats and nationals of either side who, when war breaks out, find themselves then either in the German states, if they're French, or in France, if they're citizens or subjects of one of the 400,000 German states of the Tay? Um, was there a, a common policy or how were they treated? Well, firstly, to deal with the what happened to the diplomats? Well, the convention is always that when war is declared, that the embassies will be closed and the diplomats will return to their home state. And this is to do with things like um, suspicions about espionage and so that they won't be caught up as well in the war itself. Um, Paris, for instance, was bombarded and was besieged by the Prussians. So, you know, of course, it made sense not only for the German diplomats to um, not be there, but also all the the foreign diplomats eventually had to leave. Now, in terms of the what happened to the citizens of both countries, well, this is actually quite an interesting question because the Franco-Prussian War again is is uh, we see things happening differently to what had happened in previous wars, particularly on the French side. Um, so the French began um, by expelling German citizens. There were large numbers of German citizens who were living in France at the outbreak of the war. German um, immigrants comprised one of the largest numbers of um, immigrants, the largest immigrant communities in France at this time. I mean, the numbers... Well, we're not quite sure exactly how many there were. Some figures suggest that there may be maybe around 100,000, 120,000. Most of those um, concentrated particularly around Paris. 
And so there was this program of expulsion of German citizens. And this was due to the fear that the German citizens might become spies, um, acting, of course, for, um, for the Germans. Um, so the, the French engaged in this, this process of expelling German citizens, except for those who had been naturalized. Also, they um, accepted that refugees from the 1848 revolution, also those who had children who were serving in the French army, um, were also exempt from this expulsion. The French authorities also introduced a system in which um, German citizens who um, were not expelled would have to um, be monitored, so they would have to get special kind of passes and their, their movements would be restricted. Many of those immigrants, many of those um, German citizens who remained in France also found themselves subject to suspicion amongst the, the French people. So some of them left the cities and moved into the countryside to, to try and sort of um, escape, um, you know, the suspicions and the, the negative treatment by um, the French people. Now, on the other side, from the German side, there were far fewer French living in the German states than there were the other way around. And what's interesting is that there wasn't the equivalent policies um, implemented in Prussia or in the other German states. And this is to do with the way that the war was regarded. And it's partly because the Prussians maintained this perspective that, the, that this was a war that was being fought um, between two states, between two armies, whereas the French had this view, particularly the more the war went on, and particularly um, as the war was being fought under the Republic, that this was a war be fought between two nations, between two peoples. So the Prussians, because they had a more traditional concept of the war, didn't feel the need to expel the French citizens, and also simply because there were far fewer of them, they didn't see them as being so much of a threat. So there wasn't the same treatment of the French. Now, the French expulsion of the Germans did actually provoke quite a lot of um, protest and um, uh, you know condemnation by the international community. This was seen as being against international law. But I think it's a sign of how the Franco-Prussian War was seen by many, particularly on the French side, as being a different kind of war to the wars that had been fought previously, because this hadn't really been seen in previous wars um, that had been fought in, in Europe. Yeah, the more we get into this weekly series that we're producing, uh, the more I just keep being, because my background is First World War, right? So the more I just keep being triggered uh, by the amount of parallels. Now, I know it's not fair to kind of impose uh, the, the lens of seeing things through the First World War, but uh, obviously I can't help myself. It's jumping out at me daily in, in our work, and it's been a really fascinating part of, of the project. So we have talked a bit about the diplomacy and that led us in a way to focus down on France. So I think we'll stay in France for the time being. And the next question is a bit about how they processed this defeat. How, like in terms of politics and in terms of the military minds of the country, how did they try to understand and explain 
the defeat and what was done to prevent a recurrence, even though I think you kind of foreshadowed a little bit with the amnesia topic earlier. Yeah, so the the way that the French responded was really that everybody really blamed everybody else for the defeat. Um, there, was no, there was no agreement on why the country had been defeated. Um, the, the defeat was really something that raised profound questions. It wasn't simply seen as a military defeat. It was seen as a defeat of the nation. It was. It raised questions about what was wrong with France. What was happening? How had this country that had such a, you know, kind of saw itself as having such a glorious history, a glorious military past, um, come to this? And of course, many people saw the Prussians. They, you know, they looked down on the Prussian army. They hadn't expected to be so rapidly or so comprehensively defeated. So it really raised profound questions about what was wrong with the country. And um, the, 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 the writer, the political thinker, Nesrenan, talked about how this experience of the defeat banished and destroyed many of the legends of French political culture that the, 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 the idea of the nation in arms, for instance, that had been so kind of legendary from the experiences of the, the Revolutionary Wars in the 1790s, that was exploded by the failures under the government of national defense, and then even more by the experiences um, of the Civil War and the Paris Commune as well. And so there was this whole um, period of soul searching in France. Now, the Republicans blamed the defeat on a lack of patriotism. They blamed, firstly, the Bonapartists who had um, caused the war, but also they, they blamed the Catholic Church. They said that the Catholic Church, who had been in charge of education, had failed to instill a sense of national identity, of national sentiment, of patriotism within the French people within the French soldiers. And they contrasted this with the, the Germans, who they said, even though they weren't yet a united country, um, still had a, a greater sense of, of national identity. Now, the monarchists blamed the, the defeat on, well, everything that had happened really since 1789. They thought this, this was part of a, a much bigger downward trajectory in French history, that everything had gone wrong um, for France basically since they had executed the king um, during the French Revolution. Um, the Catholics, meanwhile, decided that this defeat was God's punishment for France's sins. And they also linked this back to the revolution um, of 1789. And they believed that the solution could only be for France to repent and to um, take a new path in which it would devote itself to, um, to the cult of the Sacred Heart of Jesus and, and revert back to a traditional monarchist and Catholic vision. So everybody was blaming everybody else. In terms of the military um, aspects of the defeat and how France sought to make sure that this was not going to be repeated, well, the, the post-war inquiry into the military causes of the defeat sought to look at what had gone wrong in terms of the military preparations and looked also at the lessons that might be drawn 
from the Prussians as well. And one of the key lessons was in terms of the numbers of the soldiers that both sides had been able to mobilize at the start of the war. And it was very clear that the on the German side, particularly on the Prussian side, that they had been able to mobilize significantly more soldiers and very quickly than the French. So this was one of the things that the French sought to address um, very quickly. Now, the, the French had based their army on um, long service. They had had a much smaller um, professional army. Um, and so they began to look at the lessons that they could uh, gain from the, the Prussian model, which was based on a much um, broader um, recruitment and on a much shorter service. But there were real arguments about how this might work in the French context. And in particular, there was concern about um, this idea of simply arming all citizens. And this was a consequence of the, the experiences of the Paris Commune and this fear that if you simply arm citizens, that this would, this would effectively lead to another um, Episodes such as the, the Paris Commune, where you get another um, revolutionary upheaval. So there was real disagreement about exactly how to go about this. And also there's disagreements about the, the length of service as well. So this is something that evolved over the period between uh, the French defeat in 1871 and into the 1880s as the Republicans gained control over the government. There was a move steadily towards expanding um, national service. Um, conscription in the French army became universal and gradually over the course of um, the period, they got rid of exemptions as well. They also did things like made military service part of the kind of national um, experience in terms of bringing it into education, encouraging things like gymnastics. And it was all part of this kind of patriotic national revival to bring the military into the daily lives of French citizens and to create this connection between military service and national identity and citizenship. Yeah, that reminds me, and I'm, I'm, my memory is failing me, but I think there's this awesome Hobbesbaum quote where he says something about like schools and conscription is basically, that's all you need, right? Um, now we have a question from some of our German listeners, and they're wondering about this concept in German called Erbfeindschaft, which is like the hereditary enemy. And this is a concept that gets chucked around in Germany in the 20th century, uh, for example, that there's like this sort of ancient rivalry, rivalry uh, with France that helps explain the multiple wars. Was there any analogous concept in France about, and I'm going to put this in quotation marks, Germany at the time? I think there's more of a sense, perhaps, on the German side uh, of France as being the, the hereditary enemy than there is perhaps on the French side at, the, at this time when the war breaks out. I mean, we do see that idea emerging very strongly after the, the Franco-Prussian War. But I think on the German side, there is a greater sense of that idea because of the experiences of the Napoleonic Wars and because of the way that Napoleon and the French treated Prussia in particular, um, you know, following the, 
during the Napoleonic Wars and the um, dismantlement of Prussian territory and the whole experience uh, um, of um, those conflicts. Now, in, in terms of France, I mean, th- there was a bit of a sense of that, perhaps amongst the elites. Um, but in terms of the, the population, perhaps the, the picture is a bit more uh, a bit more complicated. And this is to do with a number of factors. Partly it's to do with the fact that there is perhaps a sense of French national identity um, in the period leading up to 1870 and during the Franco-Prussian War, perhaps being not as strong as we might expect it to be and perhaps not defined in the ways that it would become um, in the period that followed. So I think that's partly to do with it. But we do see it emerging in uh, amongst the elites. And this is certainly an argument that is used by um, the French um, political classes and to a certain extent by the military classes as well. And certainly the more the war goes on, the more this becomes an important um, idea and 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 an important kind of rhetorical device for the French. The Republicans, once they take charge of the war from the um, the revolution of 4th of September 1870, they really use this idea um, uh, to, to try and mobilize the French and to try and gain the support of the French nation uh, as part of their attempts to um, revive the um, interest and the enthusiasm of the French as they start to have to try and create new armies, uh, you know, because so many soldiers have been taken prisoner, um, uh, you know, under uh, so many of of Napoleon III's soldiers have been taken prisoner, they have to create new armies and to create this sense that this is a, a national war. So we get this idea emerging um, under the government of national defence through the likes of Gambetta, that this is a war between two peoples. They talk about the Germans, um, the Prussians in particular, as being the barbaric enemy. And there are lots of stories about German barbarism. So they, they, they try to stir up this hostility and this antipathy. There is also um, this argument is also used by the the Republicans um, in the negotiations with the Prussians. When the Prussians try to negotiate peace, the French try to say, well, you know, the the Republicans try to say, well, you know, the the French are innocent in all of this. You know, they they were peace-loving people, and it's it's all the the fault of the the Prussians, um, you know, that they've been trying to wage war in in the past decade. Um, So they try to kind of evoke that, but um, it's really something on the French side that emerges, I think, really more strongly from 1870 onwards rather than in the period before that. Yeah, we've got, in one of our episodes, we've got a sort of a spine-tingling quote from a French newspaper that was provided by Professor Arand and Ms. Faut, with whom we're working, and it's just wild. It's like, we need to kill, and everything needs to be geared towards killing. And I mean, they actually use these, this kind of language of killing, and that's our objective, and so on. It was quite, quite a striking thing. Now, to keep going with French emotions, let's say, for lack of a better word, 
we also had some uh, people in our community wondering about this, you know, famous revanchisme afterwards. And it's, it's usually talked about in the lead up to the First World War as one of the contributing sort of contextual factors. How relevant or not, because I know I think there's, there's been some discussion about how to weigh it, how relevant is revanchisme in this lead up to the First World War? Yeah, I think you're right. There is quite a lot of debate about exactly how far this really played into uh, French thinking um, in the lead up to the First World War. I mean, certainly in the period that followed immediately after the Franco-Prussian War, this th there was very much a sense and this, uh, you know, a, a desire for revenge against the Germans and this was something that really fed off um, what we were just talking about, this idea that the Germans had waged this, this barbaric war against the French. And in particular, there was a great resentment against the peace terms, the annexation of, of Alsace and Moselle, um, and the, this desire to re regain those territories in a war of revenge. And we see this idea. I think what's striking is, is how early this idea emerges. I mean, right from August 1870, 70, you know, a few weeks into the war, this idea starts to emerge as the French experience these, these very early defeats. They're already thinking, well, you know, they're, they're not likely to win. So they're thinking about the next war. And so very early on, this idea is, is kind of implanted um, in French thinking. We see this also as used as a reason for not agreeing peace terms in September 1870, again, not agreeing to, to surrender a French territory. The French Republicans say, well, if we do, all that will happen is that the French will be um, so resentful um, against the Germans that they will just want another war of revenge. But the, the problem is, of course, that although this is an idea that many uh, French find appealing, uh, particularly, you know, because they want to get back those territories that have been taken um, in the um, final peace terms. Nobody really wants to commit to a war. And there are a number of reasons for this. I mean, partly it's because it takes a while for the French to get back on their feet, to recover, to rebuild themselves, to restore the, the strength of the French army and the French state as well. So you get this odd situation in which politicians like to talk about this idea of revenge um, in the period after 1871, but nobody really wants to, to commit to a war of revenge um, because there is a very real chance that the French might lose once again. So it's, it's an idea that is uh, around and is very popular. And the more the time goes on, the more we get this kind of disjuncture between talk about it and popular cultural depictions of revenge and the reality, the political and military reality, which is becoming less and less likely. And so we start to get the emergence of these nationalist groups, such as the, the, the Ligue des Patriotes, League of Patriots, uh, led by Paul Deroulade, um, who emerged in the 1880s, and we get this growing movement, but they're really uh, quite a minority movement. And I think by the time we get to 19 there has been this generation who have been through an education system um, in which they have been taught about 
the Franco-Prussian War and about the loss of Alsace-Lorraine, but I don't really think that it was a primary primary consideration um, in terms of French either military thinking or diplomatic thinking when it comes to the outbreak of the First World War. I think by the t- by 1914, it really has become more of a, a kind of minority nationalist idea than a dominant um, thought, particularly amongst the, the government and army. So that kind of leads me to connect this in a way to uh, the next question, which might be my favorite one of the list that we've got. Because I recall reading some months ago that, you know, France in a way is in a bit of a, an, a blocked situation after the war in terms of opportunities in Europe, and they turn some of their attention to the empire. And some of our listeners were wondering about the French empire as well and the impact of the war on the empire, in particular, the subject peoples in North Africa and, well, also sub-Saharan Africa, I suppose, Mm, to some extent in this stage. North Africa is far more important. And uh, Southeast Asia. What is happening? How does the war impact uh, these parts of the world? And what are the people there? How do they react? This has been an area that has been a subject of growing interest for historians. I think as we start to think about the Franco-Prussian War as being not just simply a war that affected uh, the French and the Germans, but a war that had really international and global ramifications. And I think it's right to to think about these um, the implications for the French colonial empire. And certainly after the, the, the Franco-Prussian War, this was something that um, became an, a, a focus for France as it sought to um, you know, recover itself and, as you say, as it sought to regain its power and its influence as a global power, one way to do that was to expand its colonial empire. Now, in terms of the, the impact of the Franco-Prussian War on the peoples during the war itself, well, it its impacts really vary depending on where we're talking about. Um, this is a war which as uh, I'm sure you and uh, I'm sure many other people will know, this is a, this is a war that um, is benefits from technological innovations. This is a war in which newspaper reporting um, becomes really important. The spread of news is, is more rapid than ever before. And so very quickly, news about French defeats spreads and spreads to um, the, the French colonies. Now, in terms of, firstly, in terms of the more distant um, areas under French colonial rule, well, it still took a little bit longer for news of the French defeats, and in particular news of the fall of Napoleon III to reach those areas. Um, Southeast Asia, it took maybe about a month for the news really to filter through to the populations there. Now, there were already tensions, particularly um, between um, the French uh, colonial authorities and the people um, of the areas in um, ruled by France in the concessions in um, Indochina, China, um, India, Pondicherry, for instance, as well. So the, it, the, the French defeat 
played into those tensions that were already there. But I think the most significant impact was really with Africa and North Africa, in particular uh, Algeria, where we do see a significant uprising that had already been real tensions that have been ongoing in Algeria right since the, the French invasion in 1830 that, that never really gone away. And when used firstly of the fall of Napoleon III, but then also of defeat after defeat for the French forces comes through within perhaps about a week um, of the events happening. That news arrives um, in North Africa, in Algeria, and that really stokes up the tension. And what makes things worse as well is that the French are having to divert forces the army that was having to maintain order in Algeria, those forces are needed, of course, in the Franco-Prussian War. So there's a significant reduction in the number of French soldiers stationed in Algeria. Um, we also, of course, see um, the role played by uh, Algerian and African forces, very significant role, particularly in those early battles. Uh, many uh, African forces play significant roles in battles such as uh, Wissembourg and Reichshofen, um, very famously as well. But what happens is that these defeats really are seen by the opponents of French war as an opportunity really to stir up those tensions. And I think, to be fair, also the French conduct doesn't really help matters. Um, divisions are fueled by things like the Cremieux Decree uh, from October 1870, which grants citizenship to um, Jewish um, uh, citizen, Jewish communities um, in Algeria. And this divides um, the communities, the Jews, of course, are a minority community in the um, Arab majority um, population in um, in Algeria. So that stirs up tension. And so we see over the course of um, the, the war, and in particular also in the period after the war, during the Paris Commune, really growing tensions. And it is estimated that perhaps up to as many as 800,000 Algerians were involved in these uprisings. And it takes many months for the French to quell the disturbances uh, in 1871. And it's only really once the, both the war, the Franco-Prussian War and the Paris Commune are over that they're able to bring forces back to restore order in Algeria. Wow, I have to say, I mean, I knew there were revolts in Algeria as a result of, of the defeats and so on, but that, I didn't realize the scale was uh, to that extent. That's fascinating. We're going to have to dig a little more there in the, um, for our project. So, last question. On the niche topic, let's say, of French monarchism after the war, what is, what is the state of that movement and how does it, relate to the imperial prince, uh, Lulu, I suppose, although I don't imagine he was called that very often publicly as he got older. Well, at least, of course, until the Zulus sort of killed him in, I think it was 1879. But yeah, what, what's the state of French monarchism and how do they connect to this last of the Bonaparte line? 
So, well, the, the French monarchists firstly um, gained a real victory in the elections that were held in uh, February 1871. These are the parliamentary elections. But the main reason that they gained this success was because they were campaigning for an end to the war for peace, whereas Republicans were campaigning to continue the war. So many people in France just simply wanted the war to end. But what this meant was that the monarchists were in control of the parliament um, from February 1871. It took a long time, actually, for the Republicans. It was really only from it was really only in the late 1870s that the Republicans properly gained control of government. But the, the monarchists were divided between these two um, rival candidates for the throne, and there was, uh, you know, for a time there was a. A possibility that there might actually be a monarchist restoration in France, although France was a republic. But there were divisions about who would be um, the new king. There was divisions over who was the rightful pretender to the throne between the legitimists and the Orleanists, and there were no, there was no agreement. Um, they were fundamentally divided. Um, and. In terms of the, the Bonapartists, uh, well, firstly, Napoleon III fled France and um, spent the rest of his days in England and died in England, uh, along with um, the Empress as well. Um, but I think in terms of the, the future for Bonapartists, for the Bonapartist um, line as well, I think, well, there was no real appetite um, really in France for for a return to Bonapartism, it was really, perhaps with the exception of some Corsicans who kind of looked back to the glory days of Napoleon Bonaparte, there, there really, I think there was really no appetite. The, the whole experience of the Franco-Prussian War had been such a disaster um, and the way that it all, it was so ignominious, the, the whole end of the, the um, of Bonapartism and the Second Empire, that there was no real prospect of, you know, any likely return of um, any future Bonapartist pretenders. So, so both the monarchists, but also the Bonapartists, well, really, um, you know, there, there was very, very little um, chance, I think, realistically, that either of them would um, regain control over um, France. And, and you know, there was, there was a gradual process, I think, despite those elections in 1871, uh, there was a move really towards the consolidation of the French Republic, which, of course, um, you know, was, was to be um, confirmed, really, over the, the decades that followed. All right. Thank you so much for that. We've run the gamut from, you know, international diplomacy to the inner workings of the French Republic to Algeria to the French monarchists. So folks listening out there, if you are now as uh, big of fans of uh, Dr. Varley's work as we are, I want to remind you that her book is called Under the Shadow of Defeat, the War of 1870-71 in French memory, and we will put a link in the description of this podcast on the various platforms that it's going to be up on. So, Dr. Varley, thank you uh, so much for uh, giving us your time and giving us such an in-depth look at all of these different topics.
Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure to speak to you today.